Good morning, everyone. It's always a pleasure to be able to come and to join y'all and to worship with y'all. And we're going to continue, as Calvin mentioned, looking through the book of Ephesians. I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 10. And if you remember, I've been uh, reminding us that the context of this book is the power of worship. That Paul, when he came to Ephesus, that one of the things he encountered was how fanatical was the devotion of the people of Ephesus to Artemis, or as we may also know her, Diana, a goddess that they worshipped and loved. And a part of the challenge that Paul faced was so ardent was their love that they wanted to kill anyone who would threaten the glory of Diana, the glory of their goddess. And Paul, as he's writing to the Ephesians, is wanting to stir up in their heart a remembrance of not the glory of Diana or Artemis, but a remembrance of the glory of the God that he's professed to them in the gospel. And so Paul's hope throughout this letter is to stir up in their heart an ardent affection for God. But we sang earlier a hymn that was written by the person who also wrote the Star-Spangled Banner, Francis Scott Key, I don't know if you noticed that, that says, Lord, with glowing heart, I praise thee. Do you feel that sense of a glowing heart? That's what Paul is hoping for, that we will have this glowing heart as we think, as we remember the God that we praise. But what if your heart isn't glowing? What if your heart feels cold or distant or lacks worship? How is it that we come to re-engage our heart to help it to have that energetic praise that Paul is wanting us to see? This passage helps us to, to see as Paul directs the Ephesians to the fuel for their worship by helping them to understand the depth of God's grace. Keeping that in mind, we're going to turn our attention to God's word. I'm going to read for us chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pause and ask for his help in understanding it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you 
want our hearts to know the depth of your grace. And so, even now, when we come with cold and distracted hearts, we have one who seeks to kindle the fire, the warm glow of your love. And we pray that this text and time would point us to that. For Jesus' sake, amen. We have a hilly neighborhood um, that we live in, and one of the things that, that I like to do sometimes when I've got the kids in the car is when we're about to enter our neighborhood, I like to put it into neutral and turn it off. Have you ever done this? To see how far you can coast. And if I do it right in a safe way, honoring the speed limit, there's an initial hill that I can go down and it gives me enough momentum that I can go back up the hill that leads to our street, make a turn and pull into the driveway without using the gas. And it's fun to do. I enjoy it because it reminds me kind of the power of momentum, the power of gravity and the nature of geography and how all those things can bring my car without any gas or energy right to where I want to be. Now, what Paul wants us to understand is, is that there are forces that, in a sense, are driving us. There are forces that are moving us that, that we don't always keep in mind. But as we come to understand these forces, what it does is it helps us to understand God's love. And so what Paul does in this passage is he looks backwards to see the forces that were controlling us so that we understand the power of God's love in our life. And so what Paul does is he looks backwards at what our life is without Jesus so that we can understand presently the nature of our love. And so Paul starts this passage telling the Ephesians that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now there Paul is reminding the Christians in Ephesus of their past life apart from God, apart from Jesus, that they were in a sense zombies. I hope you know what a zombie is. If not, this is rather awkward. But a, a zombie is, you know, this creature of uh, monster movies or things like the uh, TV show The Walking Dead that are, are objects that have animation. They move, but they have, in a sense, no brain, right? They don't really feel. They don't cry. They don't think. All they do is seek after a brain that it can eat, right? A zombie is driven by a power that isn't its own life, but another force acting on it. And Paul says, you don't realize this but you once were a spiritual zombie. That there's something that was controlling your life when you are apart from God. And so he continues by saying that, that in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul is saying you don't realize it, but you were under control of a power greater than you. Paul says without Jesus, you have no spiritual motor that is driving you forward, but instead what is driving you forward is another force. And really not just one force. Paul sees three different forces that are all conspiring to move you forward, just as the momentum of the car, the gravity that is pulling me forward, helps my car move into the driveway. Paul says that we have powers that are working on us in life that we need to remember. Without Jesus, we follow, he says, the course of this world. 
Now, when he's thinking about this world, he's thinking about how uh, there's a spiritual dynamic to what is around us, that there's a cultural pull to the, the nature of the world that we live in. And just like I can follow the contours of the road and they, in a sense, lead me home, so Paul is saying that the world has contours that lead us. Just to get a glimpse of this from my own experience as a minister, the issues for why people want to reject Christianity now are vastly different than the reasons why they wanted to reject Christianity 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I first started doing campus ministry. Vastly different. 15, 20 years ago, I would deal a lot with the intellectual issues of creation and, and God's ability to, to make this world and whether the world is this age or that age and, and all those things. People would say, I'm going to reject Christianity because it doesn't intellectually make sense. I've not had a student that wants to talk about that in years. Not that that question still may not be there in the background, it probably is, but now they have a completely different reason why they want to talk, why they want to walk away from Christianity, and that's a moral issue. That they see the way that the historic Christian ethic limits love to a man and a woman, that limits sexuality to a husband and wife in the context of a, a marriage, and they say that's immoral. Love is love. And if God says that's not love, then he must not be loving. If Christianity says I can't affirm that, I can't affirm Christianity. And so the objection that, that leads people away from Christianity is vastly different now than it was 15 years ago. But do you see that what makes Christianity something that is a reason to object to, a reason to turn away is the tide of the culture. That what is compelling now is what the world says is compelling. And this is important to remember. This is important to realize that a lot of times the things that cause us to doubt God or question his goodness are often propelled by the gravity of the culture around us. And that we can judge the eternal goodness of God by the present cultural preferences. But it's also important to look back and to see the ways that this is not something new, but we are always using our cultural preferences as a way to say that maybe God isn't good. Maybe he isn't acceptable to us. And when we remember that, what it helps us to do is to, to not be caught by the power of the present moment, but to, to think back to the way that people used to think that eugenics was a progressive, good way that we could care for people. And, and the idea that, that even someone who in their mental illness was created in the image of God and so should be treated with respect was obscene, illogical. When we are captive to the current cultural preferences, it's a slavery. And Paul wants us to understand that, that there's a course of this world that leads us away from God, but he doesn't just want us to see that the, the course of this world leads us away from God. He also says that, that behind that is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There Paul says there's this other enemy, this other power that is working in us, just like I need gravity and I need momentum in order to move me forward in my car as it's coasting. Paul says that there's another force propelling us forward and away from God. And here he's referring to the devil. That's the prince that he has in mind. 
And the way that, that the animosity that can be in someone's heart against God, it feels personal because there's a personal force that's behind it. That it's not just kind of this cold calculation about whether or not God is acceptable, but there's an actual personal force that is coming in a sense whispering to us and, and propelling us further away from God, and that's the devil. That the devil does not like us to be close to God, to know his love, to know his goodness, to know his glory. And from the very first entrance of the devil, what do we see? Him trying to drive a wedge between God and his creatures by whispering into our ears, you know he doesn't really love you. You know he's not really that good. And Paul wants us to realize that this is going on for us so that we see again the things that are conspiring to drive us away from God. But he continues and says, not only do we have the world, not only do we have the devil, but we also have the flesh. Verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul here is saying that not only are there outside forces that are, are pushing us away from God, but there's internal longings, internal desires that are, are driving us away from God. That our desires themselves say that, that I don't want to go to God to receive from him his goodness, but I want to go where I want to go and find goodness in my own way, to my own taste. And Paul here is painting a picture of all the forces that in a sense lead us away from God because he wants us to understand what God did. He wants us to get the nature of what God does for us in the gospel. What's interesting to me now is the more that I get older, the more that I realize how much my parents loved me. Now, parents are a mixed bag, and I say that as an imperfect parent. And some of us have great parents, some of us have bad parents, and a lot of us have parents that are kind of somewhere in between. <laughs> but as I have parented my own children, as I've experienced how tiring it is to wake up in the middle of the night and to care for them, I've experienced how I'm trying to lead them in good ways, protect them, encourage them, and to see the way that they sometimes respond with a sense of anger at my efforts to care. I find myself looking back and seeing my life through a different set of eyes and understanding the sacrifices of my own parents understanding their efforts to care, which at the time may have not felt as loving. And through that looking backwards, I begin to understand more the depth of their love. Now that's what Paul is trying to help us to do. He's wanting us to look backwards and see the nature of what God did so that we understand more deeply his love. And you know, that's why we use the liturgy that we do where a part of our worship is confessing sin. Why do we confess our sins? Is it so that we kind of feel bad about ourselves? No. The purpose of our confessing our sins is to stop us and to say, wow, I did not realize how much you did for me until I stopped and saw that, that you forgave this sin, you paid for this sin, you dealt with this sin. Do you ever realize that? 
When you sin and you feel that sense of guilt, that sense of shame, you feel in a sense surprised as you look at yourself through the, the lens of that sin. Do you ever realize that God wasn't surprised at that sin? That he knew it was going to happen all along? And that when Jesus went to the cross, he was expecting that that sin would happen? And so in that moment, it's not that God's grace grew, but what happens is your realization of his grace grew. Your understanding of the depth of his love grows. And that's what we do when we confess sins is, in a sense, we're growing our heart to take in the depth of his love by stopping and reminding ourselves of all the ways that he cared for us, all the ways that we sacrificed us. And so we pause and say, Lord, here is yet another way that you cared for me that I didn't realize that I'm quick to forget. We confess our sins, and then, of course, we respond with the assurance of God's pardon. And it's not that that pardon is new, that pardon is in the past, in the work of Christ, but yet it hits in a new way, doesn't it? His forgiveness is a little bit bigger. His love is a little bit bigger. And that's what Paul wants the Christians to realize, is, is the depth of God's love as they look backwards at the depth of the danger that they were in, to realize the depth of their love by understanding the powers that work in their life so that they understand the power of God's grace active in their life. He's wanting them to look at themselves apart from God, apart from Christ, so that they look at themselves now in the way that he sees them. There's a quirky movie that I stumbled on one day called Lucky. And it's about this old man, this very old man. He's in his 80s, and he's dealing with a sense of relentless guilt that has plagued him since he was a boy when he shot this bird that died. And throughout this movie, he isolates himself because it has that sense that I am just not able to be loved. Because look at what kind of person I am, that I would kill a beautiful, innocent creature. And there's a scene where he's in this bar and he's overhearing um, people talk and, and he's kind of just listening and taking it in, but he doesn't want to step in. But there's a character that sees him and he says this, I know that look. I used to see it all the time. You know where? In my own mirror. That reflection staring back at me. Ungats, nothing. I was nothing. I was a bum. I had no plans. I had no ambitions. And then someone adds, you were a two-bit hustler. And he says, you're right. That was me. And I knew it. And I'd look into the mirror, and all I would see was nothing. A nothing. I hated myself. And then someone asks, well, what happened? And he says, I met this fantastic woman. And she met a bum. She met a deadbeat. Did she try to change me? No. Did she expect me to change myself? No. She accepted me for who I was, who I am. Still ungot, still nothing. But now, I've got everything. And isn't that something? 
What was he doing in that moment? He was pausing and remembering who he was. And then in it, he sees the love that entered his life. And and now that he looks at himself, his understanding of himself, nothing hasn't really changed so much as how he views himself. Not in the fact that he is now better, but now that that love is deeper. And he views himself as having everything because he has the love of someone that he worships the love of someone he adores, the love of someone that he values. And this is what Paul is wanting to happen to us. He's wanting us to see that apart from Christ, we are nothing. But God saw us in our nothingness, and he didn't leave us, but he came to find us, to bring us to himself so that we can feel and experience and know that to him we are something. And Paul says, when you see that to God, you are something, you have everything because the God of the universe loves you, which is why the focus of this passage, the focus of this long sentence in chapter two, verses one through 10 is found in the middle where Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There, Paul wants us to see that the subject of this sentence, this passage, is God and what God has done. And the object of this sentence, this passage, is us, the objects of his love. And the verb is the way that he made us alive together with Christ. That God found us when we were nothing, when we were dead. He makes us alive. He found us when we were unloved, and he makes us love. He found us when we were children of wrath and makes us children of joy. Paul is wanting us to see the beauty, the greatness, the glory of God's love. So he reiterates it. He says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He wants us to understand the depth of that love because Christian joy comes from that understanding. A glowing heart comes from that understanding. Understanding that is the fuel of our worship. Knowing that apart from him, we are nothing, but through his love, we have everything because we have him. Paul wants us to understand the the nature of this. And and so he wants to drive home that that this is a love that is not built on us, but is solely built on his goodness and kindness. So as he speaks about the nature of his grace, as he speaks about the nature of his love, he wants us to be clear that this is not something that we have earned. And so he says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, sometimes Lauren has me run an errand for her and go pick up some makeup for her. And it's just a task, but sometimes that task is fun when I get to the makeup counter and they tell me there's a free gift. There's a free gift? I love free gifts, and I love it if it will lessen my cost. But those of you who laugh know the catch, right? You get to the makeup counter, and that free gift is with a $29.50 purchase. I've begun to implement this with my Christmas presents. I have a free gift for you children, but it's with a purchase. Is that a free gift? No. And so if I end up with that free gift, it doesn't really feel like a gift. A free gift is something that we don't contribute to at all. 
And Paul is wanting us to understand this is the nature of God to us, that there's nothing that we contribute to his love for us at all. There is nothing, nothing about you, nothing that you've done, nothing that you will do, nothing about who you are, that God says, because of that, I'm going to love them. And what Paul is doing is he's clearing away all the weeds that can creep into our life and cause God's love to be smaller so that all we see is the immensity of his love. You know, that's a challenge for our hearts. That a lot of the reasons why we struggle or we begin to forget God's love is because part of us, part of us begins to realize we deserve it. And you see this in your relationships, don't you? When is it that you get frustrated at your spouse? It's when you feel like you deserve some love back, right? You've been doing this for them, or you do that for them, or you care for them in this way, and this is what they do? When you begin to lose that sense of gratefulness that someone like this would love me, (laughs) and you begin to think, why aren't they loving me more? That's when your love grows cold, right? It's true in our relationship with God. And so Paul is trying to see, you see, there's nothing about you that caused God to say, this person deserves my love. So that all you see is the beauty, that you were nothing. But he makes you something because he gives you everything when he gives you his love. And Paul wants us to see this by looking backwards, but he also wants to see us by looking forwards to the future, that that God's love isn't something that was a crescendo in the past, but actually there is a greater sense of God's love that you are destined for. Paul says in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages... Paul is looking forward to the sense of eternity and saying that when you step across the veil of life into the eternal, you're just going to be beginning to grasp the depth of God's grace. And that all throughout eternity, what's going to happen is your heart and your ability to take it in is going to be growing so that more and more you come to realize throughout eternity how loved you are, how gracious God is, how good he was to you. Can you imagine that even now what you have is just uh, the fingernails beginning of a whole body of love? And Paul describes this as a task for the ages to try to get your mind around God's love and that that eternity itself is not a big enough time to be able to encapsulate and contain the depth of God's love. And he describes that love by saying it's immeasurable. And the Greek word behind immeasurable is the word where we get hyperbolic. That God's love is hyperbolic. It is beyond our ability to comprehend, beyond our ability to understand. But if this is true, why does it feel so small? Why is it that our hearts don't glow? It's because we usually make ourselves the subject and God the object. That this world is about what we do and not what he has done. What we want and not what he wants. What we love and not what he loves. 
When we think we are something, God begins to become nothing. And that's why Paul says this is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is wanting no boasting because he knows that every bit we boast in ourselves lessens the sense of God's work. But the more that we look at God, the, the bigger his work becomes, the more that we feel loved. Every time we think that we have to grow our heart by saying, look at how good it is, it actually shrinks your heart so that you're not able to take in the immensity of his love for you. And you can see this come out in how we relate to others. When, when someone's criticism cuts you to the heart, when you just stew over what they said for days and weeks, why does it matter? It's because there's a part of you that says, it's true. I am an idiot. I am useless. I am ugly. But in the same way, we can see this in the way that we sometimes relate to others. We'll look down at them and think they're boring, they're weird. But what are you doing again? The same thing, right? You're looking around at others to compare yourself to so that in a sense you can say that I am worth love. And that worth is based on what I do or based on who I am. But Paul invites us off of that roller coaster where our heart seems to shrink or grow based on what people think about us and says that all that matters, all that you need to see is what God thinks of you. And Paul says, of course you don't deserve his love, but that's the point. That's what makes it grace. That's what makes his grace so deep, so wide, so immeasurable, that we cannot ever deserve it. And Paul wants us to understand that the more that you see backwards to the depth of your sin, the more that you see forwards to the love that you're going to understand, the more that it changes you in the present. So that he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Now it's easy to think that here's the 2950 to the free gift. <laughs> that God's love is a free gift as long as we do good works. Is this a catch? No, that's not what Paul is saying. Remember back to verse 2, the way that he was saying that you once walked under the powers that were driving you and the powers that are pulling that car into the driveway. There was a force that was acting on you, and how do you see it? It's seen in your momentum. And what is he saying here? If you see good works, if you see you loving others, what does that reveal? A different force is working in you. A different power is driving you. A greater force is moving you. And Paul wants you to understand that the good works he has in mind reveal, in a sense, a heart that is loved. They do not reveal to God that you are lovely, but they reveal to you a heart that is filled with his love. What you do in life reveals what you love. How you live your life reveals what matters to you. And this is not just true of us. This is, in a sense, true of God as well, which is why Paul, throughout this passage, reminds us again and again of the way that we can begin to measure, the way that we can begin to comprehend God's love is seen clearly and fully in Christ. 
Paul throughout this passage speaks of us as the object of God's love. And God is the subject. The verb is to make us alive. But the power is Jesus. The power that is propelling this passage is the work of Jesus. And throughout this passage, as he speaks about what happens to us, that we're made alive, that we're raised up, that all these happen with the word with. They all happen with. And that with tells us that we are with him, that we are with Jesus, and that Jesus is the means of how God's love becomes real to us. And we know that this is true because we see played out in the life of Jesus what we deserve. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And what happens to Jesus? He dies for our trespasses and sins. And Paul says we are made alive together with him. But why do we know that that is true? Because we saw that he was made alive for us. And Paul tells us even that we are seated now in the heavenly realms, how do we know that that's true? Because we saw him ascend into the sky so that he could be, as Stephen saw, seated at the throne of God. Paul wants us to understand that we can begin to measure the depths of God's love when we look at the way that Christ looks at us, the way that Christ loves us the way that Christ cares for us. And that helps us to know how God thinks about us. Does he love us? Yes. How do we know? Jesus. Does he hold our sins against us? No. How do we know? Jesus. Is he going to abandon us one day? No. How do we know? Jesus. Is the best yet to come? Yes. How do we know? Jesus. Paul helps us to, to see the spark that causes our hearts to grow by pointing us back to Christ in the way that Christ, in a sense, embodies the story of God's love for us. That Jesus gets what we deserve, death. And we get what he deserves, glory. So that we know now what our hearts are called to do. Worship, give thanks. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that would cause the Lord of bliss to bear that dreadful curse for my soul? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ways that you care for us so deeply and the way that Christ points us to begin to understand the depth of that help that to set our hearts on fire and worship. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.